Welcome to The Peel, where we break through the surface of sustainability in Florida and get to the juicy stuff at the center of it all. I'm your host, Amber Whittle, Executive Director of South Bay, Sarasota at the Florida House. We're a nonprofit that is increasing the resilience, affordability, and health of Florida's buildings and communities, and we're saving the planet along the way. Check out our programs and events at southface.org backslash Sarasota and schedule your tour of the Florida House Green Demonstration Home and Gardens today. Our guest today is Bill Nussie, recovering tech CEO and author of Freeing Energy. Welcome, Bill. (laughs) Thank you for having me today. Thanks for joining us on The Peel. So please take us on your work and life journey that led to Freeing Energy. That's a really broad, fun question. Thanks for asking. It's, yeah, I think when I was in uh, high school, I decided I wanted to be an electrical engineer. So I took all these classes at North Carolina State University to learn how transmission and electronics and all this stuff worked. And I really fell in love with technology. Uh, And I think it was around then when I was in college that I had this idea that if I ever wanted to become a billionaire, I should start a battery company. Uh, I had this idea that batteries were going to change everything. And and obviously this was, I'm old enough, this was before camcorders and, and other lithium ion battery powered consumer devices. And uh, the bad news about batteries is not a lot of people have made billions of dollars on them, but the good news is they have absolutely changed the world and they are just getting started. Uh, but fast forward um, to the, the book writing, I had run a company out of Atlanta called Silver Pop, which was one of the top digital marketing technology companies. In, in the world, and we had sold it to IBM, and it became the IBM Marketing Cloud. And you know, it was a, it was a wonderful uh, step in my career. I had some financial comfort that I didn't ever imagine I'd have, and I really wanted to figure out what I could do that would matter the most. Uh, I had been I'd had worked with great companies, built and exited several businesses, but for this next phase of my career, I really wanted to uh, do something that mattered in a huge way. And I did a lot of spreadsheet analysis and thinking and navel gazing and ultimately decided that um, energy was the single best thing I could do because it checked three enormous boxes for me. Uh, one was that it's probably the fastest thing we can do to save the planet. Two, it's the single unifying social uh, equity creator. It's uh, If you're in Africa, it creates uh, family, education, women's rights, health. Uh, if you're in the U.S., it allows resiliency for uh, underserved communities. So, uh, and then of course, it's one of the biggest business opportunities in history, which appeals to the capitalist in me. And uh, I, but I, the, so the last answer to the last step of the journey was that I didn't know anything about the industry. And a friend of mine called me up one night and said, "Well, if you want to learn an industry from scratch, you need to quit your job at IBM uh, and you need to write a book." I said, "A book?" And he says, "Yes, you can ask the smartest people in the world the dumbest questions." Uh, and they'll happily answer them. And uh, so my first, so I said, going to do it. And I resigned uh, 36 hours later. It was the hottest idea I'd ever had in my life. I spent three months winding down. And uh, in the beginning, at the very end of Christmas Eve of 2016, I started with my very first interview, which was with Amory Lovins at his uh, home and the headquarters of Rocky Mountain Institute out in Colorado. Uh, and uh, just went from there. And um really was an amazing journey. It was supposed to take two years. It took four or five. Along the way, I traveled, I, I traveled to mud huts in Africa. I climbed a wind turbine. I went to the headquarters of Jinko and saw the largest solar factories in the world, interviewed 320 people. 
uh, amazing adventure. And now the book is out and it's, it's exciting. And there's a mission to spread the word about local energy, which I'm excited to talk about today. Thank you. Yeah, I was saying when we first got on that I read the book this weekend and I'm so excited. I just wanted to talk to someone about it. So I guess if you Thank have you. a podcast, you can also get the most brilliant people to come on and you can ask them dumb questions. <laughs> it actually works really well. I've gotten I'm, I'm almost to 100 people on our podcast of Bring Energy and had some remarkable people join us. And uh, it's the best, funnest way to learn. It is. And so now that What's your next step? You've done your first step. You've done the research. You've written the book. Where are you going to take it next? Well, ask me in six months and I'll have a plan. But the uh, I'm going to take a very serious vacation uh, for the next uh, couple of weeks. And uh, starting with going to Florida, as a matter of fact, uh, and visiting some friends and some doing some fun things down in Florida. But uh, as the spring rolls in, I'm going to be evaluating a, a couple dozen business opportunities and uh, narrow it down to the best ones and hopefully get them off the ground. Very exciting. Well, a well-deserved break after five years of writing a book. It has been intense. It has been intense, yes. Much more so than I ever imagined. I will never, ever write a book again. <clears throat> I do not know, recommend writing books. <laughs> well, there's some good advice right there from an author. <laughs> So you've been very involved with South Face in Atlanta over the years. Um, so how did you how did you find out about South Face and get involved with them? And you you're still involved. So over all the years, you've stayed involved. When I was starting this journey, I reached out to my network globally, nationally, and locally in Atlanta. And one name in Atlanta kept coming up. You need to meet Dennis Creech. And so I believe I visited him in the office there on his last day or his last week, but he is just uh, transitioning out. And we spent a couple hours together and he just absolutely inspired me. It was a, a, it was a vision of energy that I'd never heard. You know, it was obviously very focused on efficiency, which was, uh, which was less than what I had started with. And, um, uh, and, and how energy impacted the community and how efficiency impacted the community and impacted lives. And so that really got South Face on my radar. And I met many people over the years. Then a few years ago, they, South Face decided to expand and try its hand at not just helping um, folks build energy efficiency into buildings uh, in, in communities that needed that help or would benefit tremendously from the help, but also looking at how they could power them. So I was part of a uh, project for a school here in Atlanta called SAE. And it's, uh, I believe, uh, the largest solar-powered school in Georgia now. And uh, South Face led the effort and brought together a consortium of folks, including me and my family and some others. And uh, we helped make that a reality. And so that has brought me very much again into the orbit of uh, into South Face and excited to be so. Yeah, and we're really excited about the next step in our partnership when when the technology becomes available to start pairing solar with batteries, which I know is your passion. And for us hurricane-prone people down here, um, I yes. think that's something that's very, very exciting for us. I was saying we actually that put a battery in in the SAE school. That was part of the plan. So it's not enough to back the school up to any reasonable way, but it was enough to demonstrate the technology feasibility at a small scale. And uh, so definitely, uh, you you. I can tell you read the book. Uh, I am passionate about uh, what batteries can do and will do and are doing to our energy system. They change, as I like to say, it changes the energy the electricity system from arithmetic to calculus. 
and uh, it really lays bare just how unprepared the utilities are to deal with this change. Uh, but it also presents incredible opportunities for them to do a far better, cheaper, more resilient job than they offer today, particularly in Florida. Exactly. So getting to Florida, our previous guests of the Peel have discussed the solar industry and net metering because we have a net metering bill going through our legislature right now. Um, your focus is on solar and batteries, and you emphasize that they are technologies, not fuel. Will you elaborate on this concept and explain why it's an important distinction? Uh, it's a for a hundred years the utility industry has done a remarkable job. It has made electricity affordable, reliable, safe for the entire country and for a good portion of the world. So, I tip my hat and have the deepest respects for the leaders and visionaries that make the utility industry work. But that said, uh, the models and the technologies that we use today are largely unchanged from a hundred years ago, and the basis of all energy systems in the world, electricity, transportation, aviation, are all based on fuels. Whether it's coal or petroleum or uranium, the entire economic basis of energy is fuel-based, all the way back to wood uh, before there was fossil fuels uh, being uh, adopted. And what's happening now is that there's an absolutely massive change afoot. The energy system is shifting from one that's based on the economics of fuel to the one that's based on the economics of technology. And fuel is a, it's not a simple industry, but it's a relatively straightforward comparatively in that um, the price of natural gas is based on a set of known inputs, um, geopolitical, uh, a, a, a geopolitical pushes and pulls, uh, uh, fracking technology, distribution pipelines. You know, it's a known and, and largely unchanged for the last couple of decades, but batteries and solar are progressing at a rate that is has no precedent in any energy uh, ever created in the world. So you look at solar, for example, uh, since the solar was first put on American satellites in the 70s, the price of solar has declined 400 times, 400 times. It's a it's almost one tenth of a percent of what it cost when they put it up first on satellites. And <clears throat> you don't have to look any further than the U.S. government's projections for uh, solar penetration. You know, for, for 10 or 15 years, the EIA, the Energy Information Administration, and its counterpart in Europe, the uh, uh, IEA, misprojected uh, solar penetration by an order of magnitude. One year out, they were off by five times. And they did this year over year over year over year. And, and they just could not incorporate the fact that solar was going to absolutely follow the same cost curves as uh, mobile phones and laptops and flat screen televisions. They just couldn't apply that economic model to planning the power industry. So all their projections were wrong and they continue to be wrong, although they are wising up. And so that's why technology becoming technology industry is so important. You know, one of the people I, I think the second person I actually interviewed for the book was Jim Rogers, who was the CEO of Duke Energy at the time. And he has since passed away, but we had dinner together, very generous with his time with me. And he, um, as we wrapped up, he said something that's in the book and I'll never forget. He said, Bill, it's, it's time for the uh, power industry to become a technology business again. Absolutely. One of my favorite quotes in the book is when you say, like breakfast, the chicken is involved um, and the pig is committed. So that was... <laughs> 
that was sort of your analogy for um, the chicken is technology, right? So solar, you it's it's completely free after a while. It's involved, but you're not using up the sun. Whereas with fuels, you use up the coal, you use up the oil, you use up the uranium. Um, and so I just I love that analogy. That's good. Thank you. And you know, I think the other downside, which everybody who listens to this is, you know, shares shares the view of, is that the waste products left over from those fuels is is really becoming an issue. Uh, even nuclear advocates realize that dealing with nuclear waste uh, is a serious issue, and you know, it's going to be 400 generations of people that have to keep the nuclear waste protected. Uh, keep it out of the hands of terrorists and and keep it from leaching into the environment. And, you know, there's no one's accounting for that uh, in any economic model of nuclear. And coal is, is, is way out ahead. You know, they, for 100 years, they've been dumping coal ash in ponds. And Florida and Georgia are infamous for all the coal ash ponds we have. And 90 uh, percent of them are unlined. And um, whenever they can convince the government to look at it or environmental groups go look at it, they find that there's all kinds of nasty chemicals leaching into the water tables. And uh, at some point, uh, this is all going to have to get cleaned up. And uh, this is going to be a tax on future generations that's not not as big as uh, climate change uh, mitigation, but it's another giant hundreds of billions, maybe trillions of dollars that our grandchildren are going to have to deal with. Uh, and uh, all the more reason to move to solar, wind, and batteries as fast as we can, and geothermal and others. And I really liked how part of your book, you look through the different myths and you sort of debunked the myths and um, one of them being the waste. So, uh, so solar panels and batteries, they can be recycled. The technology might not be there, but right now, but as the opportunity presents itself and as lithium and silver um, and cobalt you know, become, you don't, we don't want to end up in the geopolitical skirmishes that we have um, with big right. oil. And so we can come up with technologies to recycle um, those elements. I really, I, that to me was, was heartening. And that's a great example of where I think government regulations, I'm, I'm a, generally a capitalist generally, but I think government has a big role to play. And rather than say, for example, going to utilities and saying, Hey, you have no competition. And you're going to have guaranteed profits, which I don't think is something the government should do. Um, I do think the government should do like they have in Europe and say to solar installers, hey, you need to create a bond so that when the solar plant in 30, 40 years needs to be cleaned up, there's escrow set aside to clean it up and restore the you know, the field or whatever it was beforehand. Uh, and by the way, that creates a built-in economic incentive to make recycling cost competitive. Uh, I think it'll get there overnight anyway. But, you know, those kind of really small additional costs have profound downstream effects if they're done wisely. And I think recycling of solar and batteries through uh, bonds at the beginning of projects is a super simple, effective way to do that. Yeah, absolutely. So I have a I have another question for you. It's a little bit about net metering. Um, FPL, which is the major um, power supplier here in Sarasota. Their main argument for net metering is that the more people who get off the grid with solar, the fewer people there are to support the infrastructure of the grid for people who can't afford or can't do solar. What do you have an argument, a counter argument to that? You know, I do. And it's disappointing to me the number of people that take that argument at face value. Just even advocates of solar just say, well, yeah, but. So there's really three ways to address that argument. The first is that um, 
FPL is not paying the same price to generate your electricity throughout the day. You know, most people understand that when there's peak load, everyone comes home from work, turn on their air conditioners, hot summer days, uh, the utility is generating the most expensive kind of power. It's going to its peaker plants. And so that's the very same time that solar is producing the most power. So that it actually has been argued, and there's multiple studies, including from Lawrence Berkeley Labs, pretty credible study that shows that actually by producing solar power at the time, particularly in a place like Florida, where the utility would otherwise have to buy the most expensive peaker plant power to continue making the grid work, um, they're actually lowering utilities costs. Uh, it also, uh, they're putting less of a strain. Utilities uh, economics are not defined by generation, but more about maximum capacity of the grid. And so when you're generating solar on your roof there at your building, uh, you don't, you're not taxing the grid. You're just one small increment less requirement on the grid for uh, Florida Power and Light to have to maintain that grid capacity level. So it actually lowers their costs. That's one argument and one, one reason that I think is um, uh, ignored. And a lot of the studies that are put out by the utilities don't incorporate this. But utility studies by other groups, including the national labs, say that this cost reduction of local solar actually lowers the operating cost of utilities, not the opposite. Uh, because cost of the power changes, the cost of power changes throughout the day. That's the first argument. Um, the second is that the thing I love about that argument, which is that wealthy people are installing solar and it pushes the cost. So let's say that there's actually a cost shift. Let's say there really is. Um, uh, what's amazing about that argument is there's actually not just two parties, not just the wealthy families who can afford solar and the low-income families that can't. There's actually a third party involved who's never mentioned, who has more money than all the wealthy families and all the low-income families, and that's the utility itself. So they have managed to get famously friendly advocacy groups that work together to actually fight each other over this because they've divided them among people that are advocating for the poor versus people that are advocating for environmental causes. And these people have come to battle and the utilities just step back. And they say, well, good thing we're not in the middle of this debate and, and our profits aren't going to get touched at all. Uh, and so there's, it's just really stunning to me that the argument that everyone's having doesn't include that, well, why don't the utilities have to give something up too? They've got a, there's a better product out there called solar. It's going to save people money and it's going to reduce the revenues of the utility, but they're not even in the argument. And then the last thing is, and it's probably the strongest argument, and I, the Wall Street Journal had a piece by their editorial board last week, which really triggered me. And I wrote a, uh, a thousand word response, uh, which is I've been putting everywhere and just getting a lot of pickup, which is to say that the entire utility industry is built on cost shifts of all kinds, as is the airline industry. When you pay your mobile phone bill, there are a tremendous number of cost shifts going on, depending on usage levels and demographics. And so that whenever you have an, any industry that's got a lot of assets and it's sharing them among people, the way that you make that work is with cost shifting. And you just look at the utility industry. Uh, uh, inner city uh, buildings where homes are stacked and people are eight stories and 10 stories high, they, they take costs very little to deliver the electricity because there's so few wires required. So those people are, are essentially, and they're often low income, they're, they are essentially subsidizing the suburban people who have lots of wires. Um, and then as, res as you and I, as residential payers, uh, we are subsidizing. We pay a lot more per, 
per kilowatt hour than industrial companies. Uh, and so we are subsidizing, and essentially all of us residential buyers are lowering the cost of electricity for industrial buyers. Um, there's, and, and the biggest cost shift of all when it comes to this kind of efficiency stuff isn't even rooftop solar. If you go back to 2019, and I cite all the resources in my book, or 2020, I can't remember, the, uh, the total amount of cost shift that occurred from all solar in the United States was $2.6 billion. It's a pretty small number to compare to a $400 billion industry, but you know a percent here and there matters to utilities. Um, but that same year, uh, people that installed LED bulbs, where so many people installed them, it lowered the utilities revenues by $5 billion. And guess what? If you look at the statistics on LED bulb installations, it skews heavily towards wealthy affluent homes because they can afford the more the higher upfront cost of these bulbs, uh, LED bulbs. And so you have a, a, a cost shift that's arguably twice as large. It's been taking place for the last three or four years that isn't rooftop solar. So then it begs the question of, okay, so if cost shifting has been around since utilities were invented 100 years ago, uh, they're going in every which way, every direction. Uh, you know, wealthy affluent people are, are paying more money so they can produce um, discounts for low-income families. So they have they don't pay the full electricity bill as a matter of legislated or policies. So it's cost shifts going every direction. Why is it that this single cost shift of all the things in all the industries um, is uh, being called out? Well, all you have to do is go back to history, go back to 1976 when the greatest regulated monopoly in in the U.S. history, AT&T, was under assault, and everyone was trying to break up the company uh, because they were basically, they had captured everything. And the question on the table in 1976 was whether um, people should be allowed to compete, should be able to add in their own handsets to the, the telephone network, should be able to do their own long-distance capabilities. And AT&T uh, CEO at the time, Martin DeButz, went in front of an audience and said, the problem with allowing for competition is that it's going to, um, oh, fewer people are going to be buying tel telephony from us, and the fixed cost of the telephone network is going to go up for low-income people who are least able to afford it. So the identical argument nearly 50 years later um, is being used by utilities. And so let's go, look, well, let's look what happened at AT&T. It turns out the government didn't buy it. They knew it was a there's some truth to it, of course, but it's a minor issue in the scheme of things. What AT&T was really saying is what the utilities are really saying is I don't want competition. I don't want the fact that there's actually a better product that everybody wants, but I don't want it to happen because for the first time in the history of utilities and then in AT&T, um, they had actually had to face competition. And so they invented a boogeyman. AT&T did it. Now, fortunately, the government didn't listen to AT&T. And as a result, we have a couple of benefits. We have something called the internet. Um, we have something called mobile phones. Um, there is, if you look at the history of AT&T, there is no possibility those would have emerged under AT&T's monopoly. So can you imagine what will become possible if we actually let innovators into the electricity industry, just as innovators got into the telephony and data communications industry? If we let innovators who can make new kinds of solar cells and residential batteries and B2G, and we actually let them do their stuff and remove them all this 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 uh, heavy-handed government stop, stop, stop. Um, I think that we'll look back in 20 years at the grid as it is today, and we'll just kind of chuckle. In the same way we look at long-distance telephony that used to cost $2 a minute. Um, it'll get cheaper, it'll be way more resilient, uh, and it'll create tens of millions of jobs that we don't even know it could exist today.
Exactly. I mean, I think that's such an important point that it hadn't really, it wasn't as obvious to me until I read your book that our utilities aren't capitalists. It's not a business. It's a capitalist. It's, it's a monopoly. So they get all the reward and none of the risk. So when things happen, like we were talking about the nuclear plant out at, um, in Levy County that was shuttered, um, ratepayers paid for years to build that it it went under and then there was no compensation for that money that they had put out that they didn't get anything back for and so that's not the way capitalism uh we think of how that works right that's a protected monopoly yeah it's like if uh, remember the old blackberry telephones remember those things yeah and so you know and, and blackberry did not want the iphone to come out iPhone was a better product. It did more features. It was more advanced. It was faster, but they did not want it to come out. So if they were a monopoly, uh, like the utilities, uh, uh, they would have said, well, listen, let's tax the iPhone buyers um, so that their costs effectively go up and therefore fewer people buy the iPhones, uh, even though they want them. And so that's really what the utilities are proposing to do when they add fees as they had in California. Thankfully, it was knocked out, but they were proposing to put an $8 per kilowatt fee on anyone that owns solar, which was so, so broken and uh, didn't accomplish anyone's goals. No one in the state, none of the legislator, they just didn't, they were so um, taken by the utilities arguments, a simple, powerful cost shifting argument that they, they didn't look past it. I, I remember talking, interviewing a uh, regulator for the book and um he, we were talking about this, these kind of issues, and he said, "Well, Bill, the problem is that uh, you know we're a public office; we have limited resources. The utilities, when they want to make a point, they come to us with you know powerpoints and statistics, and they're in our in our terms, in our in our you know exactly what we need to see, and we're able to take that and really make sense of it. But when the solar industry comes to us, it's like mishmash, and it's different voices, and they don't have." And I said, well, if you would allow the solar industry, if you'd guarantee the sale of solar and allow them to guarantee them to take portions of the profits and put it towards buying analysis and 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 uh, PowerPoint makers, then you could equal, equal it out. But the solar industry is run by a bunch of scrappy, pioneering, environmentally save the planet people. Thank goodness for them. But they don't have the resources to hire dozens or hundreds of analysts to put together convenient present presentations to you. It's your job. Uh, Mrs. You, uh, regulator to to do the hard work and you know and see through the convenience of something presented by someone who has five five dozen people working on it versus a scrappy industry. But your job is to hear hear them the same way. And I think she was uh, she was thoughtful about that. That's good. I mean, it's also that it's just one person talking versus a hundred people, right? It's much harder yep. to get consensus on a PowerPoint from a hundred people than staying on message with right. one person. I spent some time. Uh, I interviewed Abby Hopper on my, who's the head of SIA here in the U.S. Uh, and you know she represents very different groups, and uh, she's got the large scale installers, and she's got this home home installers, and they don't all all agree. And it was fascinating. We didn't record the part of it, but hearing how contentious and fractious the solar industry can be, to your point, um, it's very uh, very difficult to come up with a single message. But utilities have a very simple message, which is they want to continue being a profitable utility. Exactly. So you had talked about the the sort of red herring argument of equity. So can you discuss how solar and batteries, um, how it will be 
cost competitive against what we have now because people don't like change. But of course, um, what sells is when something becomes cheaper. And our solar installers we've had on here had said they finally hit a tipping point, which I thought was so interesting because in your book, that's exactly the graph you showed was in 2020, that solar and, and um, big grid, it now costs the same amount. And in 2027, it'll be half. And in 2040, it'll be a quarter. So solar will get cheaper. Um, and as everyone will get on that train, um, and then how will that affect equity? Um, and how you talked about, say, what mobile phones did in Africa, where they sort of leapfrogged the infrastructure of landlines. Well, the people who are concerned about equity in the power industry and think that the answer should be just to give utilities continued free reign for another century, uh, I think are missing the biggest point. If there's an equity issue that emerges because of solar, whether it's cost shifting, which I don't really think is one, or just that uh, low-income households communities can't afford solar, or because they um, they often live in apartments, which are difficult to power the facility with solar because you, you don't have enough proportionate roof space. It is very weak thinking to say, well, the only answer to that is that we have to just keep utilities the way they are. <laughs> it's like in Africa, they tried for decades to bring power, power lines out there, uh, sorry, phone lines, and it turns out they never needed them. They ultimately didn't need them. They just went mobile. Um, and there's not a perfect analog with power, but there's a decent one. And uh, and that's what's happening in Africa. You know, 100 million people in Africa have small scale solar battery systems now and tens of millions are adding larger scale solar battery systems that can power homes. Uh, and what we'll see in uh, the economics is that they become irresistible in the US and in Africa and everywhere. And so what the utilities by, by playing hardball with net meter and what they're essentially doing is just accelerating the inevitable future where when batteries come down as far as solar has, it'll be universally cheaper for everybody to do solar and battery. And the grid will be relegated to a role of backup at best, or if the utilities are smart, they'll make it into a trading platform, which is what they should be working on now, which they are doing in some countries like Australia and some places in Europe. But in the US where we have such um, wide open lobbying capabilities with so little visibility into lobbying money, um, it's difficult to see, to have a real conversation about the benefits of actually moving to a uh, the internet of energy, so to speak. Um, but I think that's ultimately what happens. So if we hold off solar by poor net metering policy for too long, uh, all it's going to do is make when batteries allow the full resilient electricity to become as cheaper, cheaper than the grid, people will rush to it. And you're going to have something that could have been managed as a trickle and a transitional change. It's going to become a waterfall. But in all cases, this is why we elect legislators, and this is why we have public utility commissions. If this is re resulting in uh, inequitable treatment, there's a whole host of things at their disposal to make sure that low-income families uh, are not left aside for this. A, a simple example is the billions of dollars the U.S. government, the Department of Energy, is putting into community solar right now. You know, we're, we're seeing a renaissance. I mean, community solar is already the fastest-growing kind of solar. But the they putting a rocket boosters on it now, and in a couple of years, if you if you do live in an apartment, uh, you can't you don't have a FICO score to put up your own panels or even buy into traditional community solar where you buy a panel. Um, 
the, the, the federal government's going to make sure that there's a myriad of ways where you can actually get all the benefits of solar, predictable prices into the future, uh, cleaner environmental benefits, uh, lower costs, uh, and you'll be able to access all those uh, indirectly through the local grid rather than um, uh, having to put it on your roof. And so that's just one of dozens of mechanisms that are easy to solve the inequity issue. And it just drives me crazy at the lack of imagination where people say, well, gosh, the inequity might occur. And if it does occur, the only answer is to fall back to a century-old business model that has failed in almost every measurable way. Absolutely. So, so solar has reached its tipping point in terms of costs. Do you have a prediction as to when um, batteries will hit that tipping point, that solar plus batteries will become cheaper than just being um, than doing net metering? Well, first of all, those numbers are incredibly general. Uh, Florida is different than Georgia, which is different than Texas, which is different from California, from Hawaii. So in Hawaii, as an example, in many places in Europe, it's already cheaper to do solar and batteries, full stop. Uh, it's probably cheaper to do it in California with their high electricity prices. Uh, we here in the South have uh, the benefit of lower priced electricity, which is one of the reasons that I think the monopolies have had unmitigated, have maintained their unmitigated control over the grid because they have done a good job to their credit uh, of keeping electricity prices low. So the, the outcry to do different things, alternatives, rooftop solar batteries has not been as strong as it is in places where electricity is very expensive. Uh, that said, um, batteries are going to continue to go down at a very predictable rate. But the most exciting thing about the price drops, and this is something I didn't expect when I was writing the book, was that it's not about the price of a solar cell or a battery. That actually is, I don't care about that. And I, I thought that was the point. And I'm an engineer, science guy, so I that's really cool to see some new battery technology. And I love that stuff. So if I put, well, let's say in your house, you or your neighbor wants to put solar on her roof and um, just plain solar. On average, and it's pretty consistent across the United States, um, she's going to pay about $3 a watt. And she's going to buy, you know, Q-cells panels and uh, sun uh, end-phase inverters and, you know, have some electricians and installers come out and put it up. She's going to pay about $3 a watt. That number is going down slowly, but it's been pretty consistent across the U.S. If she lived in Australia and she bought an end-phase inverters and she bought Q-cells panels, same model, same make, uh, the electricians came out to install it, she would pay a dollar ten in U.S. dollars. The difference is soft costs. You may not find this surprising, but the U.S. solar installation industry faces a mountain of red tape and bureaucracy, competing uh, com competing um, standards on uh, how to install them and what process to use, uh, uh, different regulations for costs and subsidies. And so, what again, what the Department of Energy is doing in the United States is they're pushing something called Solar App Plus, which is a uh, is a system that will mimic where we're adopted by local communities. <clears throat> it will mimic some of the streamlined things that Australia and Japan and other places have put in place and um, lower the cost of solar. They're they're talking about um, getting your solar system up from in 12 weeks faster. They're talking about lowering the cost by reduced soft costs and instant approvals and things like that. You know, 10, 20, 30 percent. And we just keep doing that in the United States and we'll be at a dollar ten. Uh, even if the price of a battery and a solar cell doesn't go down at 1%. So th there's so many forces that are at work to take the cost of solar and batteries uh, to so far below the grid that um, 
all the utilities can do is that all they should do is realize this is inevitable and make sure they're part of this. We want them to be part of the system. We want them to have a grid. We want them to be a platform for trading electricity. Um, but so many of them, particularly in the Southeast, are fighting a tooth and nail, uh, just like they fought uh, renewables. Now they're kind of, you know, hey, I don't want to put up a solar plant, but now they are and they're kind of into it. It works. But at first they were fighting that too. So I think that um, the change is inevitable. Timing, uh, I still think we're a few years where solar plus battery is cheaper, maybe five, but we'll see. Some big breakthroughs coming. That's so exciting. As I said, in, in hurricane land, we love the thought of being completely um, off the grid because, of course, when hurricanes go through, um, even if you have solar, the grid goes down, you don't have power either. So you were talking about LEDs and how that decreased um, the the not necessarily the profitability, but how much energy Big Grid was selling. So you call um, electric vehicles a Trojan horse. So please explain um, how you think electric vehicles are going to affect the whole dynamic. I went and did a lot of history for the book, and, and I actually had a whole chapter on the history of the early electricity days to understand the origins of regulated monopolies and the the father of regulated monopolies was a man named Sam Insull, who was Thomas Edison's secretary, literally, uh, and amazing personality. There's a movie called War of the Currents, which covers uh, bits of this with Benjamin Cumber Cumberbatch. But um, the, the essence of the regulated monopoly is that there's only one entity that can sell a kilowatt hour. And in some uh, 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 pro-choice or so electricity choice markets, you can have different people competing to sell the kilowatt hour, but they're selling it under the same system, under the same set of regulations. So even when there's competition, it's not the kind of competition that Thomas Edison and Sam Insel and uh, uh, Nikola Tesla and, and George Westinghouse created when they invented this industry. Uh, and so if you go back and look at utilities, uh, court cases and, and legislation and lobbying, the consistent theme is that no one else can sell a kilowatt hour. And if, and if you're going to make me let someone else sell the kilowatt hour, I'm going to still have a strong hand in how that works. But then another thing happened that changed utility, confused utilities because there's this thing called electric vehicle. And the per capita consumption of electricity in the United States started peaking and has been declining, actually. People pay less on average for electricity since the widespread adoption of LED bulbs. So electric vehicles is the first chance in five or six years for utilities to see once again, to see their electricity uh, per capita uh, payments go back up again. So they really want you to, they really want electric utilities, sorry, electric vehicles to take off. And if you were charging your car at a paid station five years ago, you almost certainly paid for how long it was connected. And it's kind of an equivalent to taking your car to the gas station and putting in the nozzle and paying for how long the nozzle is connected into your car. It's meaningless. What you care is the number of gallons you bought. Um, but most of the EV charging early on was by how long you're connected, not how many kilowatt hours you you actually put in your car. And so utilities were convinced in order to let electric vehicles thrive and take off to make a carve out for the very first time. You know what? For the first time in 100 years, we're going to be okay if someone sells a kilowatt hour because they're selling it for an electric vehicle charging. And that's and it's true. And so dozens of states have passed laws for the first time, someone else, a vehicle, EV charger, can sell a kilowatt hour. Seems innocuous, seems straightforward. What people don't realize is that they are creating a tra Trojan horse. Um, if I go and charge my car, uh, and then I uh, flip all the way up, 
and then I go to your house to come visit you, and I plug my car into your house, and I use um, technology that isn't widely available today, but it's it's just a software patch to an existing battery system. My car actually discharges into your house and charges your battery uh, in your house. Uh, or better yet, um, you might have seen that uh, everyone from Amazon to the US Postal Service is rapidly trying to electrify their vehicles. Uh, makes a ton of sense. It's cheaper in every single way. Well, imagine that Amazon vehicle is dropping off your package and it rolls over the wireless charger that you would charge your car with at your house, but it actually takes a little bit of the power because it knows there's not as many packages today. It's got some extra power left in its uh, batteries and it charges your house and, it char and your Amazon bill has a $10 charge for, um, or a $5 charge for putting a bunch of kilowatt hours back into your house battery. And essentially, because it's now legal to sell kilowatt hours when a car is involved, um, you open up an entire ecosystem. And this is the kind of stuff innovators and entrepreneurs love. And you can't put this genie back in the bottle. The utilities are going to try and they're going to fail um, to say, well, no, no, wait, we, we meant only sell it when we're involved in one side of the transaction of EV charging. No, no, we don't want anyone to be able to do this. We don't want you to take your car and use it to put in your house. No, no, we don't want that. No, no. Or I'm going to charge, take my car and charge your car. We don't, we didn't mean that, but that's what's going to happen. And you're going to see, I call it MB2H, which is mobile battery to home. You know, every delivery vehicle, uh, your neighbor, when you go to work and, and you're, or the grocery store, more and more people are going to offer, uh, just like uh, free Wi-Fi used to be an enticement. You go to this, this coffee shop because they have free Wi-Fi. You're going to go to this coffee shop or this grocery store or this mall because you have free EV charging. Uh, we, When my company was acquired by IBM, we put up the first widespread IBM car chargers at an IBM office. And um, the surveys from employees said one of the reasons they loved working there was that they got free charging. And in this world, they could take that, they could charge all the way up, go home and recharge their house. Uh, and they could, they could sell it to you on their way home. They could give you five kilowatt hours and charge you for it and make money. So this is the, this is a huge Trojan horse and it's, it, you can't put it back in the barn. Yep. That is, I, I definitely did not think about that because of course the discussions we've had here at our different lectures have all been about like during the hurricane for 72 hours, you can use your battery to charge your house. So. That's yeah. interesting to think of it on the capital market moving around. And I know in Georgia, so you had talked a little bit about the face-off between big oil and big grid. And I know, isn't there a bill from Wawa going through your legislature where they're trying to say um, to put in EV chargers, they get to keep the profits from it rather than it going to big grid? I hadn't seen that. I uh, I try to stay away from this stuff because it just, um, as you know, it becomes all encompassing and I'm a business guy, not a yeah. policy expert, but I will take a look at that. I've actually got a call with a, a Georgia policymaker today. Yeah, I think it's interesting. It's just exactly what you said in your book, setting up who's going to who's going to get the profits if a, at a gas station, is it going to go, is the profit going to go to the grid or to the gas station if yes. someone charges their EB? It's great to be a monopoly. That's for sure. It's a wonderful yeah. place to be. <laughs> and we've almost we've got several of them. Um, so for my final question, I love a good crystal ball. So what do you think is the future of utility scale energy? You've mentioned it a little bit with becoming a trader of electricity instead of just a provider. I think that's that's really it. And the you if you look at the history of disrupted industries, and there's dozens of examples, uh, steam shovels is one of my favorite which were entirely disrupted by hydraulic actuators. 
And this is all, a lot of this is covered in my absolute favorite business book, Innovator's Dilemma, and a must read for anybody that's interested in how industries become disrupted because it's an absolute roadmap for exactly what will happen to the utilities. <coughs> the great number of them will spend all the remaining energy, all their assets and all their influence to try to maintain the status quo. Uh, and inevitably, as it happened to AT&T and it happened to the steam shovel manufacturers and happened to the spinning hard disk manufacturers, uh, they all became irrelevant uh, at BlackBerry. Just keep going on and on and on. It, it became irrelevant and they were ultimately either went out of business or more likely in an asset intensive industry like this, their assets get rolled up into competitors or new companies that actually understood how the future was going to play out. And um, we listen, we absolutely need utilities. We need a, a electricity of record. We need a, a system that we know is reliable. We need um, uh, transmission that gets fixed when it gets broken. We need all these things. So we, we need utilities. But the question at hand is what business model do they have? And um, uh, they would like to remain unmitigated monopolies without competition, particularly here in the Southeast. And um, that's just going to change. Uh, and I would love for them to. Um, to listen to some really the really smart thinkers who are looking at the future of the grid, I would tell them to go read uh, Peter Fox Penner's um, uh, Power uh, After Carbon, which is he's one of the top utility experts in the planet, and he's wrote a book that talks about how this change is happening, how it's going to go towards distributed generation. I would tell them to go look at Hawaii. I call Hawaii a postcard from the future. Hawaii had all the problems where the they said, well, listen, there's too much solar. We're going to stop it. I think it was 2016. They told the people of Hawaii, you can't put up more solar or it's going to become so expensive. Guess how that went over? Uh, right, exactly. So uh, Hawaii got into to a corner. The utilities and the regulators sat down. They created some really inventive laws and policies. And some of them are broken, but they're out there trying it. They're doing new things. And you just look at Hawaii, and that's where utilities are going to have to go, uh, one form or another. Or you go look at Australia uh, or Europe, energy communities in Europe. I think these are all examples that U.S. utilities should be studying hard. But I fear that they're putting too, uh, proportionally far more of their resources into lobbying at the state and federal level to mess around with net metering and uh, you know trying to install more natural gas plants, with all of which have a timeline that will only undermine their financial uh, strength long term. So it, their future is in their own hands about how soon Absolutely. they think they're going to adapt. If they did adapt, will they still have the profit margins that they had? They actually now? might be more profitable. Because when you're a trading platform, you typically are more, it's much better to be New York Stock Exchange than it is to be, you know, Unilever, right? Uh, mm -hmm. And so the revenues go down, but the profits should, should go up. Uh, and these are critically important businesses. So their opportunity to grow through mergers and acquisitions and extending into uh, other markets, I think, is also very, uh, very real. And, um, but of course, the biggest trouble utilities have, there's many that I've talked to that really get it, but they're entirely... Uh, hamstrung by their regulators. They cannot uh, get the regulators to see things differently. And so the only things they end up doing are like building nuclear power plants, which I, you know, because that makes sense. It's big, it's expensive, it's an asset, it ties in grid, it's baseload power. They have lots of reasons to do that kind of thing and not nearly enough to try stuff that's worked in every single other industry, um, but just is untried in the utility industry. So you've got a lot of forces that resist change. And uh, I think that's a uh, change is going to happen. Just a question of which direction and how. And history provides a lot of good lessons. I hope utilities uh, heed them.
Absolutely. And it can end up being good for everybody. It can be good for the environment. It can be good for equity. It can be good for homeowners and it can be good for the utilities because um, AT&T did come back around. They're not a monopoly anymore, but they didn't completely. Um, they do have some monopoly either. things. They actually do have some monopoly oh. stuff in terms of infrastructure and things like that. But it's it's rational. It's not the I want the monopoly. That's all the really good stuff that other businesses don't have to deal with, like competition. I just want a competition free environment that they don't have. Uh, except in areas where it makes sense to have um, monopolies, like in the case of electricity, you want you want the power lines to your house to be just one company. You don't want to have three or four competing companies, although that's happening for cable and uh, fiber networks, and that seems to be working. Um, but I, I would argue that we can wait a little while before we worry about pulling multiple electric wires to our house, and we can just yeah. let the that monopoly persist, but move towards... Uh, the prices and the models changing. Yep. And maybe not even needing wires to your house. That's, That's yeah, I, I was, that was my big hope when I started writing the book and I was, I was uh, disappointed to learn that from a practical point of view, uh, I, it's just, most people will not choose to go off grid. There are, are enough benefits to being on the grid that uh, I think there's always going to be a need for it. Uh, sorry, there's always going to be a desire for it. It's always going to be a very profitable business, even if it looks very different than it does today. Uh, and it's a it's it's a great lifeline. If your solar system goes down, you still have power. Now you should in the future you should pay a lot of money for that, uh, not your ten cents a kilowatt hour. You should pay a lot of money for that because you shouldn't let your solar go down, and you should be yelling at the solar people to come fix it, so you're not paying this high price. But I do think that, and and you're no longer making money by selling your extra solar to your neighbor or your neighborhood. So you you really want. Um, to have that network and that distribution network in place. I think that's my assessment. Yeah, absolutely. Hey, you know what? We get some entrepreneurs involved. Let's see what they come up with. Who knows? Exactly. That's what I think is so exciting. And just on a last note, I think that that's a really interesting point because in Florida, it seems like the two P the two types of people who want solar as the innovators, as the, just the first people were the people who wanted to go off grid um, and then the people who now want cheaper energy, it's becoming that's where we've taken off. But the the first adopters really did want to go off grid. So I think it's interesting that most people still will not want to to cut the wire completely. You know, one of my favorite ideas in the book was uh, this three, this four phases of adoption. It was price goes down. It was still very expensive. People adopted it because it was green it saved the environment or they wanted to be off grid. Uh, we're in the second phase now where with government subsidies and things like that, all energy is subsidized. So solar enjoys subsidies. Uh, you know, it's getting widely adopted, but we're hitting the tipping point, like you said just now in Florida, where it's actually cheaper to do solar, and that's going to become a universal fact across the country in the coming years. Um, but that's only the third phase. The fourth phase is when it's so cheap to generate electricity. Uh, we do it in so many different ways. We actually have an abundance of energy, which has never happened in human history. That's where it gets really yeah. exciting. All right. Well, thank you so much, Bill, and thanks for listening to The Peel. To get involved with South Face Sarasota at the Florida House, visit southface.org, Sarasota. Until next time, stay sunny. <laughs> thank you for having me. <laughs>